Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. Um, I'm Stephanie and I'm here today with my friends Jimmy and Kirsten. Hello. Hi Jimmy and Kirsten, we're all virtually waving to each other um, in, in different houses across the city. Um, so today we're going to be talking about um, one of Shakespeare's most well-known plays and that is Macbeth. And one of the reasons that we wanted to um, to talk about Macbeth is, well, it's always fun to talk about Macbeth. And two, um, some of the students that we're, we're teaching at the moment are, are reading Macbeth. So hi to all of our 1001 students out there. I realised I just waved and no one's going to see me wave, but whatever. Um, so I might start with you, Jimmy. Jimmy, what is it about Macbeth? Um, first of all, what are your, what are your opinions and, and thoughts about Macbeth? And why do you think it's it's one of those Shakespeare's that we keep coming back to? Okay, well, I suppose I've had a long history with Macbeth. I've um, I did it twice in high school. I don't know why our high school decided to, in the infinite glory, to teach us that play twice. Uh, once I think in year eight, and then once for the HSC. So I've encountered it on numerous occasions. Then I did it again in high school, uh, in, in university for my undergraduate. Then I did it again during my master's. And then, of course, I'm teaching it almost every single year in 120. So I've had a very, very long history with this play. And just as well, because I actually love this play. It's one of my favourite um, Shakespeare play. Um, it was my favourite for a long time, but more recently I've decided that probably Lear is my favourite of all the, of all the play. But that's something we can talk about on another occasion because I think you know that's that's more of a play that as you get older you you know to your horror understand a lot more, um, which is really really sad because it means I am getting older and older and older. But Macbeth is um, it's a you know it's it's not necessarily a young person's play, but it's a play about somebody in, in the prime of their life. Um, and it's, of course, a very, very flawed character, but it's also, I think for the students' sake anyway, the shortest uh, and most action-packed of all Shakespeare's plays. It's so fast and so easy to read. There's so much that happens. Uh, it's, uh, it makes a terrific film because, you know, there's so many um, scenes that just work really, really quickly and, you know, uh, everything is just really exciting, fast-paced. So from an entertainment perspective, I think it's probably um, one-off, if not the most entertaining of Shakespeare's play. But from a um, academic perspective, it's also, I think, really rich with interesting ideas um, and explores really, really fantastic themes that I think we can all relate to to, to some degree. So uh, for that reason, I think um, Macbeth is certainly, for me anyway, very um, up there in terms of um, my favourite Shakespeare's play. All right, Kirsten, how do you feel about Macbeth? Um, I I also like it. I've also like Jimmy um, have been teaching it almost every year, um, you know, for like the last ten or eleven years in our Ingle One Twenty unit at Macquarie. Um, and I always really enjoy it when we do. And I find that um, the students seem to really enjoy it once we get into it. Um, I think it's it's one that is um, easily accessible to a lot of people. And like Jimmy was saying, it's action packed. It's fast paced. Um, I really like a lot of the supernatural and gothic elements because um, that's sort of my thing. <laughs> um, so all the witches, uh, Lady Macbeth is fascinating, all the parallels between all the women. Um, there's a lot going on that I find uh, is really clever, really layered and has a, a fascinating connection with the history um, around this play and at the time. So I think all of that stuff is just, there's just so much to get your teeth into, basically. You can either enjoy it for what it is, for the, for the drama, or you can go further into it um, and start peeling back the layers and it just gets more exciting, I think. 
All right, let's start with Lady Macbeth because I think that Lady Macbeth is what potentially, well, at least to me, is one of the reasons that I, I think we're so fascinated with this play and have been for so long. How do you read Lady Macbeth? Um, how do you respond to Lady Macbeth as a character? Maybe we'll start with Jimmy. Yeah, I, I love Lady Macbeth. I think she's one of the most fascinating characters um, and certainly one of the most um, intriguing characters that Shakespeare has ever created. Um, I had a lot of problems with her um, very early on when I was um, studying uh, Macbeth, mainly with the issue that a lot of people have with her, which is that she's so strong and so powerful at the start of the play. And then she just disappears, like halfway through the play, she just completely disappears. And then the next time we see her, she's already been driven mad. Um, and there's no justification or no explanation as to why she actually goes mad. Uh, and there's a kind of disconnect, I suppose, between that strong Lady Macbeth and then the madness that came afterwards. You know, so why was she driven mad and Macbeth wasn't? You know, why was he still fine? So there was a, I had issues with that, but I kind of, I was able to reconcile that um, as I continually you know, teach the play over and over and over again. Um, it sort of uh, eventually occurred to me, um, quite a long story, which I'm sure we'll get, we'll get into in a little bit, but um, th there was that issue with it. But I suppose, you know, for me, Lady Macbeth uh, was defined by a really, really interesting portrayal that I saw uh, during my HSC, I went to see a speech that uh, John Bell gave uh, off the Bell Shakespeare Company, uh, and he brought with him um, the uh, actress who's, who was playing Lady Macbeth at the time, and I've forgotten her name, Anna somebody. And she, when she started to speak about Lady Macbeth, I got it. I understood Lady Macbeth when she spoke about it because she made it such so accessible. Um, she said basically for her, Lady Macbeth, she always imagined Lady Macbeth as looking very angelic. She said, so she went in with a blonde wig and she made sure that she was always wearing white and, you know, she wants to portray Lady Macbeth as physically very, very angelic, but there's um, this sort of steel underneath all that, you know, there's, she almost uh, reenacts that speech that she talks about, that um, advice that she gives to Macbeth, you know, be the flower, but be the serpent under it. You know, so she almost wanted to make herself exactly that. She's the flower physically, but she's the serpent underneath that flower as well. Uh, and then she did a reading of Lady Macbeth, uh, mainly the um, transformation scene, you know, um, uh, come you spirit, tenor mortal thought, you know, unsex me now, that, that particular um, uh, soliloquy. And the way that she spoke it, I just went, okay, I understand, I understand this character. I understand where she's going. And I think that's the key to understanding a lot of Shakespeare's character. If you're able to encounter a really, really good interpretation of it, someone who can understand the language and, and you know, recite the language that doesn't make it sound, um, you know, stifling or, po uh, or overly poetic, I suppose, but made it sound almost like speech, then you kind of get the character, you get the nuances of the character, you get the complexities of the characters, uh, and you understand what actually makes this character work. And so for me, Lady Macbeth uh, is a character that is highly complex, but mainly because I think she is also ambitious, but I think unlike Macbeth, there is a, um, a line that she can't, quite cross. And in uh, the, uh, the sequence of the play, she actually does cross that particular line. Uh, and so for me, that was kind of the interesting thing about Lady Macbeth itself. I think that that's um, kind of underlined for me by the references that, she, that there are through about the play to a sort of softer side of Lady Macbeth. Um, so for example, um, in one of the scenes, I can't remember which, in which she's trying to um, encourage Macbeth to, to kill Duncan, she says something like, well, if he didn't look like my father, I would do it myself. Kirsten, Lady Macbeth, how do you feel about her? 
Um, I I feel much the same, and I completely agree with Jimmy on the value of um, seeing a production if you can, particularly a good one, obviously. Um, but almost anyone, I would say, I think um, this is something I always say to my students. Um, I think there's so much value in um, looking at the way that actors interpret plays. It's what they do. They're trained to do that. And for us to watch it and see it performed, and there are so many different ways you can do it. And obviously there are adaptations, which we may talk about a bit later. Um, but I, I just think it, it's so different from reading it. So it's, it's, it's almost a, um, a must do, I think. If you're going to approach this play, definitely try and, and see it somehow. Um, Lady Macbeth is, is also wonderful for me, um, like I was mentioning before about the historical connections. She's so complex because she's, she really does sit on that sort of liminal point between the human world and the supernatural world. She's the kind of the linchpin between them. Um, and this really comes down to uh, her unsex me speech again, um, where she's basically trying to throw away her human femininity and what... Um, is arguably represented as a natural born female weakness and taking on um, a, a demonic nature, which is uh, aligned with the masculine in this play, at least. Um, I think Shakespeare does all sorts of interesting things around gender, both masculine and feminine in this play. And there's a lot of ambiguity in between and the witches definitely sit in that space of ambiguity. You know, we know that um, there's a big deal made about how they look like women, but they're not. They have beards, etc. Um, there's so much fun stuff going on with this. I don't think um, Shakespeare offers a very clear argument on gender any any particular way. And I think that's what I love so much is just that that ambiguity, that changeability. And I think the fact um, that changeability, that central kind of theme kind of represents the whole play in a way. It's about, um, you know, Macbeth starts out one way, pretty certainly a hero, and then by the end he's something completely different. We could say Lady Macbeth is much the same, she changes, um, so, and she, she consciously goes through and, and requests to go through a change in order to um, do what she needs to do. So I think there's just um, that human element of adaptability, of changeability, that I think we can apply to so many different areas from gender through to ambition and politics and things like that. Um, that's, I think for me, that's why Lady Macbeth is fascinating because she kind of is the linchpin of all that for me. She's in the center of all of that interaction. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, what's so great about Shakespeare is that he doesn't give you an answer. He never gives you an answer. You never really know. And I mean, part of that is the play form, right? It's hard to hear his voice, um, so to speak, in a play. But I think that it's really um, easy to to kind of um, understand that he's not giving you a perspective here on Lady Macbeth. Um, he is giving you all these sorts of ideas that he sort of gives you and it's up to you to kind of figure out where you sit amongst them. I mean, you know, I've had, uh, like you you guys, I have taught Macbeth for many, many, many years now and I've just recorded two lectures for, for our students on Macbeth, so I'm very in the Macbeth headspace. Um, and, you know, I've had students in the past say, well, they think that, you know, Lady Macbeth, the very fact of her is a kind of feminist act because she's so unfeminine in, in sort of in terms of conventional understandings of, of femininity. On the other, Lady Macbeth has become a kind of cultural, I don't know, byword for um, the kind of 
the, the kind of, you know, ambitious, striving woman. You know, I was thinking about like, you know, Julia Gillard, remember years ago, she was known as the Lady Macbeth figure. And I'm like, but you don't understand Lady Macbeth. <laughs> it, you know, because people tend to use her name in a very kind of um, negative sense. And I think that really cuts against the complexity of Lady Macbeth because she's neither one thing or the other. She's, I agree, Jimmy, that she can be seen as this like angelic figure with a serpent underneath in terms of her appearance but I think there are also lots of indications throughout the text that she's not this kind of cut and dried villain from the beginning. Um, I, the point that I make in my lecture that kind of underscores this is how often Macbeth and Lady Macbeth won't talk about murder and won't use the name that won't use the word murder. They keep saying have you done it? Will we do it? When will we do it? Um, is it done? And they can't ever say murder. And I mean, if you have no problem with doing something, then you have no problem with naming it. The fact that they can't name it seems to me to be the biggest clue that both of them haven't quite come to grips with the actual implications from the beginning. So to see them as, you know, one dimensionally good or bad is to kind of not read it very carefully. Yeah, I mean, I think that actually reminds me of something uh, that um, uh, Antonina, the, a wonderful um, lecturer, Antonina Harbis, gave uh, once, and she said that for her, Macbeth was actually um, about a failure of imagination. So a failure to imagine what the future would look like, you know, when you, you know, do whatever you, you have to do. Uh, and in this case, you know, that kind of uh, aligns exactly what you were talking about there, Steph, in terms of uh, the Macbeths not understanding the implications of what their actions will lead to and their reactions to that. And I think that's actually a really human um, experience. You know, we, we do things and we often don't think about the consequences or we don't think about, you know, how we would react to the consequences uh, of it. And so we would do things, I suppose, by not naming it, you know, not actually saying the deed because it just makes it a bit easier to talk about. I mean, in a way, it's, it's almost, you know, a form of uh, political correctness. I mean, we would just use euphemisms to talk about things instead of actually talk about the actual thing itself, because the actual thing might be very psychologically you know, damaging to us. Um, going back to the point that you were making earlier there about uh, Lady Macbeth's reputation uh, and what she's been, what she's synonymous with. Uh, and, you know, when you, when you were talking about that, the first thing I was thinking about was uh, the way that she's uh, actually, I suppose, reappropriated in terms of the femme fatale character. You know, she's almost you know, one of the earliest prototype for that femme fatale character. She's taken on, that role and when you think about a femme fatale you do think about that lady macbeth-esque character i guess uh and and that's something that is actually really interesting that you know she's she has steeped into uh our uh, our language you know she has become part of our discourse and part of the way we actually communicate uh, and part of the way we also label people as well especially i think strong women they're, they're often um mis maligned as Lady Macbeth, as if that's an insult to call somebody Lady Macbeth, without understanding the complexity of what Lady Macbeth actually means and, you know, who Lady Macbeth actually is. Yeah, Jimmy, as you were saying that, I was just thinking of the witches too, and um, like you were talking about how Lady Macbeth has become the kind of synonymous figure of the femme fatale, and I was thinking about how the witches have also become how we understand witches in some ways. You know, they're just such a sort of strong presence in the play that the way that the witches are represented in Macbeth seems to me to be really formative in the way we understand witches, that idea that they have some kind of mystical kind of knowledge perhaps, you know, and that kind of depends on how you interpret the role of the witches in the play. Do they know, you know, what's going to happen? Are they tempting Macbeth? Is this all written in the stars? Those, those um, themes of, you know, free will versus predestination or destiny. 
sort of hinge on the witches. Um, Kirsten, I know that the supernatural and the gothic is your bag. Um, so I was wondering what you made of the witches and the role that they play in, um, in Macbeth as a whole. Um, they are really fascinating. And I think you're right, a lot of um, our understandings, particularly literary representations of witches, stem from what Macbeth's doing. Um, it's, even in just the way they're sort of presented um, as the, the unfeminine, the unfeminine woman, um, the, the crone, the hag, you know, that sort of thing. Um, in a, and, and this is often received in a negative way. Um, with people who work um, in various forms of, of witchcraft or Wicca or any kind of religion on that side of things, um, the crone stage is, is a super powerful stage to get to um, of advanced life, advanced wisdom, um, a, a deeper connection with nature and with power. Um, it's not a negative thing, and yet it's it's um, in literature, um, in drama, it's become such a trope of what women shouldn't be. Um, and in many ways, it's because of that power, I think, because of the wisdom and the power. Um, you know, so historically, a lot of the women who were persecuted, women and men who were persecuted uh, for witchcraft, were the wise people, the healers, um, who existed outside the current political and medical paradigms um, and didn't conform, basically. So there's a lot, um, I think, behind these figures so uh, um, I always ask my students so so who do you blame like at the beginning of our discussions where do you put where do you put the blame and it's either usually the witches the, the witches first well they did it if they hadn't have said anything to Macbeth nothing would have happened so it's their fault and I'm like okay and then <laughs> the next person they blame is usually uh, Lady Macbeth well she pushed him into it she you know if she hadn't goaded him he wouldn't have done it and then at some point I ask does anyone blame Macbeth? <laughs> so um, there are really interesting discussions, I think, about the layers um, of, of blame that go through this. And partly it's to do with the fact that we start with witches and we've got this whole mystical element and magic, and that complicates our normal understandings of ethics and morality, I think, um, in a really interesting way. And I think this goes back to what Jimmy was saying um, as well about uh, what Antonina Harbus was saying about a failure of imagination. It's a really interesting way um, to approach um, considering the consequences of our actions because basically they're, they're not in a normal circumstance. They're working towards a promise of what will happen in the future. So they're, and, and we can see this happening um, in, in political uh, decisions that are made these days. A promise is made of what is gonna happen and then whatever it takes to get there is done regardless of the consequences along the way. So the promise is used to sort of sell the traje trajectory it takes to get there, uh, regardless of whatever other consequences happen. So I think this play um, and the witches sort of at the, at the center of all of this really play around with asking the thorny questions, the, but what if, you know? Yeah. I mean, precisely. I mean, it always surprises me when people do blame the witches because you know, all they have to do is say, one day you'll be king. They don't say how, right? Um, and then Beth goes, oh, murder, regicide. Um, and it seems to me that, that what they're doing, or my interpretation of the play has always been that they know that that's something that's there in Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, that they do have this desire for power. They do have this desire to 
um, to you know enrich themselves and grab power and that they're manipulating um, them based on that but I mean what complicates that and again you know this is a good example of how Shakespeare doesn't give you any easy answers is they do know things because they do know you know later on in the play they know that um, Macbeth can only be killed by somebody who was of a woman untimely ripped who wasn't born in a conventional sense um, and they do know that you know it'll be when um, what is it Burnham Wood um, moves up to Dunsinane or Dunsinane moves up whatever it is um, so, Dunsinane, yeah. yeah exactly sorry couldn't remember the the, the order um, so they do have sort of some privileged information so they, again there's just no kind of easy way so my my interpretation of well they know that he's ambitious or whatever um, isn't is actually challenged by later in the play when they do seem to have some kind of special knowledge so even that argument is a kind of flimsy one because it seems like they do have a supernatural component um, to their understanding of how events will play out. Jimmy, how do you read The Witches? Yeah, I mean, I I really love The Witches. I mean, it's it's um, I pretty much almost memorised the entire first um, scene uh, with, with The Witches because I just I think it's one of the the most fantastic introduction to a play ever. You know, and and I often cited so there's three of us here, and the first thing I was thinking about when uh, Kirsten entered was when shall we three meet again in thunder, lightning, or in rain? So um, I mean, I love them from that perspective. I think they're fascinating characters. Um, <laughs> just a little bit of a light humour. So <laughs> when Kirsten was talking about um, the gender of the witches, I thought about a comment one of my students made once and it always rings in my head now whenever people talk about the gender of the witches. Uh, and she said, you know, we, we mustn't be so harsh on the, the witches because we need to remember that back then they didn't have hormone replacement therapy. So, you know, of course they would have beards. You know? <laughs> that is a good point. And they didn't have, you know, dilapidary cream or tweezers. So... <laughs> yeah. so it's, Self, you know, self um, care and maintenance, you know, just different standards back then. So, yeah, so we have to be a little bit kinder to the fact that they look like women, but they had beards. So, you know, it's um, so there was that point. Uh, but I was going uh, thinking about another point that I always stress with my students, which is that if we want to put um, agency towards the witches, as we want to blame them for the action. One of the things that you really need to look at is the letter that Macbeth sends to Lady Macbeth at the beginning of the place, the introduction of Lady Macbeth itself. And if you read that letter carefully, the implications of that letter is that this is a conversation that they've already spoken about in the past. Like before the play even begins, uh, Lady Macbeth and Macbeth were already plotting about, you know, trying to kill Duncan. Uh, and if we go with the idea that the witches do know things, then what they do know is that, oh, these two already have the thoughts stuck in their head. So why don't I just you know, tweak it a little bit, just give them that little friendly push they need to actually get the deed done. And I think that's what the witches represent. They're, they're almost agency of, um, or agents of chaos. You know, they, they're, they're mischievous beings, definitely. Whether they're evil beings or not, I'm still kind of on the fence about because I don't think it's as... Uh, easy to define or it's black and white to say, well, they're just purely evil. I think they're definitely mischievous. I think they do want to cause mischief um, in the kingdom. And they saw a, uh, a strong but weak character in Macbeth. They found his flaw and they know this is what they need to do to, to push him towards it. So they do understand certain things. They do have some form of supernatural power. So uh, even at the start, you know, we, we get a sense of that by them just simply saying to Macbeth, you know, uh, how Macbeth uh, Thane of uh, Glams, which is what he was, and then how Macbeth Thane of Cawdor, 
which he doesn't know that he's become yet and nobody else does, but they do. So they gave him a little bit of evidence that, oh, we know something. And then they tempt him with the really juicy prize, you know, how Macbeth King that shall be. They're like, so they're really playing into his uh, ambition, into his desire. Uh, and because of that, I think we can, we can see them as certainly mischievous figure, but I don't think they're necessarily um, evil figures as such. Uh, and in terms of different productions of uh, the witches, I think the witches are one of the most interesting uh, figures to look at in terms of different versions of it. So my favorite version of Macbeth is a Japanese version called uh, Throne of Blood. And in that there's just a singular witch. Um, and the really interesting thing about this one is that he or she, I have no idea what gender this person is supposed to be because they're dressed completely in white. They have long white hair um, and heavily made up, almost completely, you know, ghost-like looking. And this person is just, you know, turning this um, spinning needle, like just basically turning it while he's, he or she is doing this weird speech. And it's really, really creepy. It's a really creepy version of the witches, but it's a very effective version because there's something otherworldly about this figure. Uh, but at the same time, we can't quite put our fingers on what the intention of this figure is. You know, uh, does it want to destroy Macbeth? Does it want to help Macbeth? Does it, you know, what exactly does this figure want to do? So I think in terms of interpretation, uh, that's probably one of the most interesting. Uh, one of the strangest and probably uh, most hated <laughs> version was something that we talked about before the um, podcast started, which was the, um, I think it was 2004 Australian production of, uh, version of Macbeth with Sam Worthington where the three witches were played by three schoolgirls, you know, and it was just ludicrous. And shall we meet again? <laughs> the lightning or in rain. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I had to do that. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> yeah, so I think the, the, the witches are really fascinating. I mean, there's another really interesting version of the witches, which um, I think you guys might have seen the, the BBC retold uh, adaptation of Macbeth with uh, James McAvoy. Um, were they garbage collectors? Yeah, the garbage collectors were the witches, you know, they had insider information because they collect everybody's garbage and therefore they know everybody's dirty little secrets, you know, so to speak. What's cool about um, that adaptation as well um, is that, again, so we meet the witches in, in um, the play in Shakespeare's Macbeth, um, you know, out on the heath, it's right on the edges of civilization, kind of like the edge of the wild. They're, again, they're on this liminal sort of plane between, um, you know, the world of humans and the other, the outside, um, the cosmos chaos. Um, and, you know, so this happens with the, when they're, um, you know, in the tips, the garbage place. So again, this is like our version of what's on the edge of the cities. <laughs> so I thought that was a really interesting, um, nice way to place them again at that. I think it's crucial where they're placed as well. Shakespeare makes a big deal about um, how the earth um, has bubbles. So they're kind of like part of the earth, but not, um, but not part of the air either. They're in that liminal space in between. So um, it's, yeah, it's really, that was a really interesting aspect of that adaptation, I thought. And I really like that idea of them having um, access to kind of privileged knowledge because, um, and that's picked up in that adaptation where they're garbage collectors. So they get to hear, you know, lots of conversations that they might otherwise not be privy to. Um, I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about the witches because women's knowledge and women's kind of learning and women's um, chat, I suppose, um, was, was viewed with such scepticism at the time, that idea that women were in league with each other, that they were going to, you know, women talking to each other was a kind of um, place of anxiety because who knew what they were talking about? 
Um, and I think that, you know, as you, we were talking about how ambiguous the, the witches are, it just strikes me as so interesting um, in terms of the context in which this is written, because James I, um, who was, you know, the patron of um, the King's Men, the acting company that Shakespeare was in, um, really honestly believed the witches were, you know, united in this plot to take over England, which sounds, you know, quite ludicrous to us now, but is something that was genuinely believed that there were cabals of witches um, that were plotting and acting um, in order to kind of bring England down from within. And that's something that we associate, I think, with the medieval, but it's really got kind of very early modern, very um, 17th century idea. And yet, as Jimmy was saying, they don't actually seem to want to bring the kingdom down, potentially. They just sort of seem to have fun, you know, be tricksters um, to, to, you know, revel in that kind of chaos that they're causing without any kind of grand plan. You know, they don't really see, um, or the way that I read it is that they, they have some kind of privileged knowledge of what's going to happen. They certainly have some privileged knowledge of what Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are up to. Um, but to me, what they seem to lack is that kind of, you know, ooh, we're going to destroy the world kind of ethos. It's just more of a, a trickster figure, as, as Jimmy was saying, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, and um, I was also thinking too, when Kirsten was talking earlier about that crone idea, you know, the, the, the fear of the, the crone figure, um, and it reminded me very much of one of my favourite literary figures, um, and that's... Um, uh, oh, dear gosh, she's, she's such a favourite. I completely forgot her name. Isn't that terrible? Um, Agatha Christie. Um, Miss Marvel. Miss Marvel. Marvel. There you go. Completely. It's game. Yeah. I've I lost my mind. My, my mind's on Macbeth at the moment. It's just not thinking about anything else but Macbeth. Yeah, so so Miss Marple is a, uh, you know, she's a crone, but she um, she basically embodies all those different things that we were all talking about there. You know, she has that insider information. She uh, She's privy to a lot of different information because people ignore her, because people don't, uh, understand that you know she's there in the peripheral listening to these conversations and picking up a lot of different information and she's also of course a very wise person too she's able to put uh, all the uh, facts together because she's she's listening and she's able to you know connect all the different dots so she has a lot of wisdom and I think you know uh, Miss Marple in Shakespearean context would probably be seen as a witch herself so I think you know that, that that's kind of an interesting uh, intertextual parallel that could be could be working simultaneously um, a bit of a, a shit stirrer like the witches <laughs> she likes sort of throwing a cat among the pigeons and just seeing <laughs> what happens it'll often sort of bring the murderer to the surface <laughs> absolutely you know and i i mean i i have a personal love for the trickster probably because uh, some people have called me a trickster themselves <laughs> so, so maybe that's why i have a personal love for it but i don't see anything wrong or evil or um you know particularly bad about trickster uh, figures i think they're often misinterpreted uh, because yes they do have a lot of fun and and what dictates uh, their action is really a, a, a drive for fun and, and a drive actually to, more importantly, uh, to stir because they want to wake things up. You know, uh, tricksters, so the idea behind tricksters often is that society, when society becomes stagnant, a trickster comes along and the trickster is vital to help society, you know, basically you know, sh wake up and shake itself from its um, stagnant um, foundation. So I think tricksters are very important from that perspective. And looking at uh, the witches from that perspective. One of the things that I'm often uh, thinking about with Macbeth in particular is how effective is Macbeth as a ruler? You know, it's something that we don't often consider enough. You know, uh, people always want to take Macbeth as a tyrannical figure, as a tyrant. You know, he did something um, despicable, obviously, to become king. But let's face it, you know, this is not 
historically that bizarre. It's actually quite common. You know, <laughs> kings are often de um, you know, deposed and you know, uh, killed in this manner, and then a new king comes along. So it's not that out of the uh, um, picture. But the point that I think um, Tony, the, the wonderful Professor Tony Cousins, raised when I was uh, taking his class was, you know, uh, we need to look at the duration with which Macbeth ruled. And there's a very long period in which the play disappears or, you know, we, we don't see what happens in the play. And Macbeth rules for quite a long time. And presumably, because the kingdom is still, you know, going fine, he's not doing that bad of a job at it. So uh, it's one of the things that we, we do have to think about. And it's, it's something that is also uh, mentioned in Hamlet as well. You know, one of the things, you know, people love to think of Claudius as an ineffective king. But if we look at the actions of uh, Hamlet, Claudius is actually quite an effective king. You know, he's a diplomatic king and probably much more so than the warmongering Hamlet senior. Uh, and it got me thinking also about um, Duncan, you know, how effective of a king was he? prior to that point and other witches then sort of uh, embodying that common voice that is unhappy with the current rule and therefore wants a new you know power to come about a new you know, a change to the system uh, and as they got you know uh, they appear again only after um, Macbeth has started to become quite tyrannical in nature as well and then it's to depose him to deceive him in a way to make him think that he's undefeatable and then he becomes defeated so they do bring about change that's sort of the point they bring about change and whether you think the change is good or bad i think that's up to you know, individuals to decide but they certainly represent that agency for change that is agency to change the status quo well i think sorry kirsten you go on i was just gonna say i think that's um I think that's all, yeah, really true. And it's really interesting and I think characteristic again of um, Shakespeare's ambiguity around this um, because Macbeth, you know, yeah, there is that missing period where assumedly everything's fine. But at the same time, we're given so many indicators that the natural order has been completely usurped. Um, you know, animals are eating each other and like this, you know, it's night when it should be day and things like that. And then at the uh, the end to justify what, what happens to Macbeth, um, there's a lot of, uh, references to um, the English king, um, references to um, Christ-like healing power of touch and things like that. Um, and I think the parallels we're being invited to draw there, at least at the end of his reign, um, are, yeah, are, are indicating, uh, you know, that w we want the natural order to be restored. And it's a natural order in terms of um, a patriarchal kind of divine pyramid, like top-down sort of ruler rulership yeah i mean i completely agree with that I, um but the at the point that um tony raised which uh i found very interesting down to sort of think about as well was that uh all those different reports that we get about macbeth being tyrannical they're all from his opposers you know we never get anybody um who is actually on macbeth's side speaking you know we always get all the people who's who uh are supporters of um I've forgotten his name now the the, the next king to be Macbeth. Uh, no, not Macduff. Macduff's the person who kills Macbeth. It's um, it's it's, a, it's Duncan's son. Um, oh, anyway. Malcolm. Yeah, Malcolm. That's it. Yeah. yeah. So it's all supporters of of Malcolm, really, who speaks all that. And you know, when he said that, I thought, well, actually, yeah, that's true. It's one of the things we do need to to think about: who are the speakers in the play? And I think you know that's part of what makes Macbeth such a fascinating play because we can argue endlessly about you know where it comes about because it's 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 not that it's uh, filled with ambiguity but because it's filled with complexity enough complexity that we can sort of say well there's other opinions or other perspectives that we may need to explore and i think that's 
an interesting example of one of those perspectives that we can actually debate about quite a lot. Well, I think another thing that goes to that complexity, I completely agree, is that, um, you know, if you want to think about Duncan as, as a king, um, the point that I've heard made many times is that Duncan is not a very good judge of character, right? He, he places this absolute trust in Macbeth. He says that he is a man on whom I place absolute trust. Well, you know, maybe you should be a little bit more, a little bit more discerning because Macbeth has clearly been planning um, to take over the throne for quite some time because as Jimmy said earlier, um, they've obviously, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth have obviously discussed it. So he's not a very good judge of character. The historical Macbeth ruled for about 18 years, I think it was, because this play is based on an actual, well, very kind of heightened version, but there was a historical um, Macbeth in Scotland in the 10th century, I believe. Um, and he did rule for about 18 years. And again, it's easy because this is a play and it's quite a short play to think that, you know, well, Macbeth is like king for, you know, half an hour um, in terms of stage time. But in terms of history, he was a king for quite some time. There is the sense in the play that time has passed. We don't know how long um, where he's just been king. Um, you know, we do get a lot of indication, as, as um, Kirsten was saying, that there the natural order is being disrupted and certainly to an early modern audience, watching a scene of regicide would be really, really confronting. Um, the idea that the king was, was killed would be really, really scary for a bunch of reasons, um, you know, because that when the, the king dies and certainly when the king dies in an act of violence, that's when, you know, wars broke out and we know that, you know, England has just come through a lot of dynastic um, stress. And this is just after James I has come to the throne. So there was a bit of, you know, anxiety about who was going to take over the kingdom when Queen Elizabeth died because she died with no children, no heir. Um, so these are all things that were sort of calculated to make people worried in the audience. But on the other hand, and this is a point, I can't remember where I read this, but um, it's a point that's always stuck with me, is that Macbeth is king, right, at the end of the play, and he's killed. So why is his the death of this king worse, or, or not worse, sorry, better to be desired than the death of Duncan? You know, if the death of Duncan is so terrible, why is the death of Macbeth so great? Um, you know, what makes it acceptable to kill the king? When, at what point is it okay to kill a king? Do you, is it okay to kill a king if he's a tyrant? And how do you measure that tyranny? What is the level at which, what is, is there an act at which a king turns into a tyrant? You know, how bad does a king have to be before it's okay to, to overthrow him. I mean, these are, you know, these seem kind of academic questions to us now because we don't obviously have kings who have this much power, but they're not academic questions for the medieval and the early modern world. These are real questions, you know, at what, where's the threshold where a king becomes a tyrant and when does it become excusable to kill the king? Yeah, I mean, uh, to go off that point, I think, you know, from a contemporary perspective, we can look at it in terms of the, the right to kill as an example. Um, so we can apply, for example, ideas of uh, capital punishment. If, a, if somebody has murdered someone, who then has the right to kill that person? So we can apply it from that perspective and, and make it, I suppose, not as, as nebulous to contemporary audience. But I think it's a really, really interesting question. And I think the, the answer that a lot of people have, um, I'm not quite sure I agree with that particular answer, is that it's in a way a justifiable act because Macbeth did the first wrong deed in killing Duncan. And so this is almost like revenge killing. So it's more understandable, more justifiable than what Macbeth did, which was more for ambition. 
So I think that's probably where they sit on, on, on that particular debate, but I'm not 100% convinced of, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously not somebody who agrees with capital punishment either. So I, I don't think anybody really has the right to kill anybody. So for me, it's quite a horrific thing to, to do either way. And I think it's a really interesting point to, to raise as well, that, you know, yeah, in the end he does get killed and in quite a brutal and you know, horrific way too. So I remember seeing the um, Shakespeare, um, the Globe pop-up theatre uh, production of, of Macbeth and they had his head, uh, mounted on a on a pike at the end of of the play, you know, in front of the, the castle. So it's quite a gruesome uh, act, and it's quite a gruesome display, and it's a it's a horrible type of death. And anyone who's seen Game of Thrones will uh, probably understand the, the the horrific nature of that kind of violent death as well. So uh, it's it's not something that I think uh, the play treats lightly. I don't think it's something that you know it even approves of in terms of looking at uh, as a heroic act, because I think we we do get a sense of discomfort by the end of it. Uh, and certainly uh, different productions of it have made it um, very, very clear that this is a cyclical thing. So one of the things that they, um, uh, lots of different productions of the play would do would be to end it with the witches again, but this time they have a new target. You know, and the new target is going to be um, uh, Banquo's son. I've forgotten his name now, Fleance, you know, because he's going to, because we know that from their prophecy that he's going to be the future king. And so they've got a new target. So we, we're seeing this sort of cyclical thing coming into effect um, at, at the end. You know, that, that's obviously not in the play, but it's a really interesting way of looking at how this is something that's not just um, with Macbeth and, and this version of the story, but it's an ongoing cyclical uh, thing. I agree completely. Um, I was going to say the same thing about Game of Thrones, actually, which I think, um, along with a lot of, you know, fantasy worlds that we've inherited, um, bases a lot of what they do on Shakespeare, particularly that level of violence um, and that exploration of human psychology in really uncomfortable moments, um, murder, greed, ambition, violence, all of that sort of icky stuff that we don't really want to think about. Um, Shakespeare likes putting that front and centre and forcing us to address it. And I think Game of Thrones does much the same thing. Um, and I think what you were saying about the um, the witches, it's a really nice a nice thing, I think, that the adaptation is doing, bringing it back to them. Um, because I think, um, you know, this, this question of the right to kill, I think a lot of Macbeth's um, murder in the end, so the removal of him as king is justified again, by the supernatural connection, um, because, and, you know, this is why I mentioned the um, references to the English king um, with the Christ-like healing powers being ordained in a way by, um, you know, from above, from the heavens, whereas uh, Macbeth has been kind of sponsored, if you like, by the witches, who are these kind of agents of chaos. Um, they're very much of the the heath, the earth, um, you know. So it's kind of these opposing forces, I think. So in some ways, and again, I don't think there are any definitive answers provided in the play, but in some ways, um, on one on one level, we're being invited to yeah see it as these opposing forces of the witches and and um, the demonic, if you like, versus the the natural order of things, the Christ-like um, and the the natural progression of kings without murder. So when Macbeth um, ruins all of that by murdering Duncan, it's kind of undone in the end, and we return to the natural way of things. At least that's one sort of simplistic reading on the surface. Yeah, I agree, and I think that. But I think what's what's interesting is that even though we get all of those. Um, references to the natural order of things being returned and we get that idea that the, you know, the world has righted itself. 
as an audience, um, you know, I, I say this in my lecture, and I think I at some point kind of must have found this statistic or somewhere, um, that um, Macbeth speaks a third of the play's lines. And just because he's so dominant in the play in terms of we get the most access to what he's thinking, the most access to kind of him, it's really hard to not sympathise with him, at least to some extent. And, I mean, that sympathy arguably ebbs and wanes of the, of the course of the play. So even though the play positions us to see his murder as a kind of revert, you know, a return to the kind of natural order of things asserting itself, because we know him so well and we've been inside his head, we've heard his soliloquies, we've heard him kind of grapple with his conscience, we've heard him be confident, we've heard him be less confident, etc. We've heard his his grief over Lady Macbeth's death, you know, the, one of those, the most beautiful kind of expressions of anguish and grief in the English language um, when he, you know, he's tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow um, speech. We just know him so well that it's hard not to sympathise with him, even though on the face of it, the play is saying, okay, you know, he is a, he's a usurper, he's a tyrant, the natural order of things seems to have been reversed he seems to be on the side of the devils you know storms break out we're told that the the night that he kills duncan there's a storm such as people have never heard you know seen before um all these weird things are happening so again our audience positioning seems to cut against the play's kind of political or the play's kind of suggestions and i and i don't think this is this isn't a fault in the play i think again it, it speaks to the complexity of the play that we're not given any easy answers. We're not given a kind of way of grappling with that complexity. It's really up to us to kind of think about how we're situated in the play. But it's just, it's so easy, I think, to read the play and just be on the side of Macbeth, even as you watch him do all these bad things, because you know him better than anyone else. I mean, who knows anything about Macduff or Malcolm or Banquo? You know, they're in the play for like a hot second compared to Macbeth. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that. Uh, and I only think about my uh, initial you know, first two encounter with Macbeth, uh, the play that is not the, the person, obviously. Um, and one of the things that I remember very keenly was that the first time I read Macbeth, I hated the play with a passion, just absolutely despised it because uh, as Steph can attest to, I really dislike anything that makes me angry for one. So that made me really, really angry because, you know, why am I learning about this despicable character? I hate this person. I can't stand him. You know, he just does horrible, awful things. Uh, I'm sure, you know, Steph, when she read for his first name, she's like, yeah, I like this character. I'm really sympathetic towards him. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But we have very different outlooks from that perspective. Um, and then the second time that I had to read Macbeth, obviously I was um, dragged kicking and screaming into it, but we had to do it for a HSC, so there's no other option. Uh, and I thought, oh, here we go again, another you know reading of this despicable character. And it was actually that very speech that you were talking about, the final soliloquy that Macbeth made, you know, after the the, the death of Lady Macbeth, with you know, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Um, that actually changed my mind about the character of Macbeth more than any other scene in in the play. And the reason for that was because I actually didn't see his humanity until that particular point. I think. Now that I'm looking at the play, you know, with, you know, obviously much more mature eyes, I can see a lot more evidence of his humanity throughout the entire play. But as a teenager, I think encountering it for the first time, it was that very speech itself that really encapsulated for me, okay, this wasn't, or this isn't a terrible person who just does awful things all the time, but rather this is a flawed person who has done something that I think what this soliloquy reveals is his regret at the pointlessness of it all. 
you know, this, this speech, it's beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful, you know, piece of poetry, I think, written in the English language. It's just absolutely gorgeous. I, I love it. Uh, and, but it's also filled with such sadness because it's somebody who has done so many horrible things and then coming to that final point where he realizes that it was all really for nothing. You know, what has he got from it uh, as a result? You know, his wife has just sort of killed herself. You know, he's, he's lost almost everyone that he's ever loved. He's lost everything that he's ever really loved. What has he gained, uh, uh, by extension of, of this terrible deed, he's become king, but it's almost like a hollow crown in itself. There's, there's no substance to it. And so it's a really sad speech of regret and sort of existential angst because he's not sure what you know, he's made of his life uh, up to that particular point. So for me, it really shows the humanity of Macbeth. Uh, I mean, obviously there are other scenes if we look at the play more co uh, closely, I think um, a lot of people have pointed out uh, the scene where he talks about, you know, the, the fact that he's in blood uh, stepped in so far that um, you know, to, to return would be just as tedious uh, as to go over, for example. I think, you know, that, that's a really interesting speech and it's often one that I, I now quote whenever I'm stuck in the middle or something, I think. Yeah, I, I, it's too late to reverse that decision now. I might as well just keep going forward and just face the consequences. I'm not sure about life advice from Macbeth, though. <laughs> well, you know, what better... Well, I think life advice from Macbeth isn't too bad because... Oh, sorry, that's my dogs <laughs> barking in the background there. Uh, they agree. See, life advice from Macbeth isn't that bad. I think Macbeth serves as a fantastic warning uh, more than anything. That you, know, uh, that, you know, going back to the point that Antonina made, that you know, if we are going to do something, one of the things that is very vital is our ability to imagine what the consequences would be like. And so, the tragedy of Macbeth is the tragedy of somebody who cannot imagine, who uh, isn't willing to imagine what it was going to be afterwards. I mean, if he had known what he knew during the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow soliloquy, he may not have done the deed you know, at the start. That's like a really interesting point to make. Uh, another point to make that, um, again, so I'm just quoting from people left, right and centre, because I have no original ideas, obviously. It's, it's just, it's all from, from people. Um, but going back to a, a point that Tony made when I did um, Macbeth during my masters was, for him, the tragedy of Macbeth is a return tragedy. That what Macbeth realises at the end of the play is what he wanted, or what he actually already had at the beginning of the play which is that he returns or he dies or he wants to die as a soldier, which is what he was at the beginning of the play. You know, he doesn't want to die as a king, he wants to die as a soldier. So what he had at the beginning of the play was ultimately what he wanted by the end of the play. And that kind of circularity is the tragedy of, of Macbeth itself. So for me, you know, when I look at it from these angles, I think, okay, you know, this, this is actually quite a beautiful, complex play, where not necessarily about a despicable person, but actually about a highly flawed person who makes terrible mistakes as, as we get older, I'm sure most of us realise we do make <laughs> along the way. So, you know, uh, it, it's, 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 a, it's a complex play from, from that nature because it doesn't give us easy answers. It doesn't create a character that makes us um, sympathetic towards him because there's so many instances where we get so annoyed with him as well. You know, um, his, his arrogance sometimes drives me absolutely insane. So, you know, the, the fact that the witches have told him, you know, the, the quote that... Uh, Steph made earlier, you know, uh, you're, you're fine until uh, Ben would come to Dunsinay uh, and you cannot be killed by anybody but um, who's not, not born a woman. And, you know, so they give him all these hints and every time one of them come true, he's kind of like, well, that doesn't matter. You know, even though that's come true, the next one is impossible. So that kind of deluded arrogance, that hubris, I suppose, um, makes us a little bit annoyed with him. But then, you know, that's, that's the complexity of people. How many people uh, do we know, for example, that often thinks in those sort of arrogant, um, stubborn terms. I think um, 
I think, yeah, this, this is all part of what I really love about the play again is that that kind of deep dive into uncomfortable psychologies. Um, and it's so relatable in so many ways. You can, you can take the scenario, so maybe not murdering a king, <laughs> but um, all the little micro decisions that lead up to that, all the emotional sort of situations and conversations, particularly between um, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, um, that lead up to that moment. And it's just kind of, um, I, I find that the play is, it's almost like you've gotten on a roller coaster and you're starting slow and you're like, okay, okay, great. And then it's just like, okay, wow, here we go. And you kind of can't get off. And before you know it, you're in this world of blood and murder. And you know, there's all this, um, all these kind of really evil things being discussed quite practically. Um, but again, yeah, without mentioning the actual word. So there's a lot of, um, I don't know, there's a lot of complexity around how these things are going, but we're kind of immersed in it. Uh, we're in this fiendish world where this stuff is really happening and it's real decisions. Um, and I think we're kind of invited, yeah, to sympathise uh, to the extent of understanding the emotions and the feelings of being in that position, not necessarily agreeing with the decisions, but at least to experience what it might be like um, to go through that. And so I think that um, what you were saying, Steph, about um, sympathising with Macbeth and we get so many of, you know, a third of the players him speaking, um, I think it's very much to sort of anchor us in this super uncomfortable space of the demonic, the fiendish, the murderous. Um, and I was going to mention, um, because uh, 19th century people are, are my other thing, um, Thomas de Quincey, who's obviously uh, an essayist, uh, most, most famous for Confessions of an English Opium Eater, um, he wrote a marvellous piece of um, literary criticism on this play, on Macbeth, called um, On the Knocking at the Gate, in Macbeth. So if any um, of our students are listening and wants to go and read that, I would recommend that. It's a really nice um, exploration of a particular moment um, of the knocking at the gate that occurs after the murders have happened. Um, and basically his argument, and he puts it really eloquently, but I'll just sort of quickly summarise, is that um, we are so immersed in this, this other world um, that is inhuman and fiendish and demonic that this moment of knocking at the gate kind of um, allows us to pause and allows us to realise by virtue of something so mundane as knocking at the door, it kind of brings us out of that world and makes us realise how far down into it we went. Um, and I think the play uh, for me is full of those moments where we're so immersed in these psychologies and in the discussions that are happening, um, even Lady Macbeth's soliloquies, we just get so, I think, emotionally caught up in what's happening there. And then something mundane will happen and you step back and think, wow, okay, I just went all the way down into that person's emotions or their thought process. And, you know, maybe to a certain extent what they were saying made sense. And then now I've come back and I've thought, okay, hang on. <laughs> so um, I think, yeah, for me, that's one of um, the gifts of this play is just the light and shade and the moving in and out. Excuse the, the truck that's having problems with its brakes as it's driving past. <laughs> I thought it was an opera singer. Yeah. <laughs> I, there are speed humps on this road. I think you realised too late. Anyway, um, so, so yeah, ba basically, I, I really admire the, the complexity in this play. And for me, it's about diving in and out of different psychologies and different approaches to what we'd rather not think about a lot of the time. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I agree with that. And I think when you said the point about the, the series of small decisions that's made along the way, I think one of the things that we don't talk about uh, and don't talk about often enough because it's overshadowed by the, the murder of Duncan is for me the more heinous act, which is the murder of Banquo. 
know, for me, Macbeth really becomes uh, completely despicable in my eyes when he kills Banquo, you know, basically his best friend. So, um, and it's also the point at which uh, he kind of uh, disrupts Lady Macbeth's um, psyche as well, because up to that particular point, you know, um, everything they did, they did in agreement. Everything they did, he consulted with her, they did in partnership. That was the first uh, act that kind of, you know, rendered that partnership uh, asunder and in a way led to uh, her, um, her descent into madness as well. Because, you know, she, she gets quite scared at that point where he, um, he's revisited by uh, Banquo's ghost. Uh, and unlike Hamlet's ghost, we know that this is probably more of a figment of his imagination because nobody can see Banquo's ghost at all except for Macbeth. So obviously this is his guilt manifested. And in a way, it should be right that he's his guilt because it's the worst thing that he did in the entire play. And he killed the king, and I'm sure to contemporary audiences, that probably would have been the worst thing. Uh, But to us now, and certainly to me at the time when I was looking at it, and possibly to Macbeth as well, the the killing of Banquo was almost completely unjustified. Yeah, at least you you don't agree, but you can understand why he would want to kill Duncan. But to kill Banquo just pushed him past that point, you know, and and for me, that was the, the, the worst decision that he made. All right, this has been great discussion. Thanks for that um, article, Kirsten. I hadn't read that, so I'm going to look it up very soon. Um, I was wondering if we might, just for the next, say, five minutes or so, um, talk about adaptations of the play. We've already talked a little bit about adaptations, um, but certainly we've all talked about the importance of seeing this in adaptation and seeing a a particular um, interpretation of the play. So I was wondering if you guys had any... um, favourites or, or non-favourites, as the case may be, that you wanted to plug? Uh, okay, I, I suppose I'll, I'll go first because I have a, a litany of um, either venom or praise for production of Macbeth. You know, it's it's one of those really interesting plays that um, I don't think there's a really, uh, there's a middle ground for a production of it. You either love it or you hate the, the production that you've seen. Uh, and my, I, I guess, top two uh, film version of the play is uh, the one that I mentioned earlier, which is um, Throne of Blood, the Japanese adaptation uh, by Akira Kurosawa, uh, who is just you know, a god of cinema. Uh, he does amazing things. Um, and he does he, he does a samurai version of it. Uh, the only thing I suppose I disagree with that particular version is the single-handedness with which he handled Lady Macbeth. She's so evil in this version that there's not as much complexity as the the play version of Macbeth. Um, mind you, she's fantastic to watch. She's just one of those you know, horribly um, villainous character. Uh, there's a moment where uh, she's trying to, you know, it's a moment where she's trying to convince Macbeth to, to do the deed. And in this version, he's there saying, oh, no, 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 I, I don't want to be king. You know, you know this, this is silly. We'll, we'll, we'll stop this discussion. And she's been sitting there perfectly still as, you know, the, if you imagine the samurai period, you know, with the, these beautiful women with the long hair and the gorgeous gowns and everything. She's sitting there perfectly still and he's saying, no, no, I don't want to be king. This is r- ridiculous. And then at that moment, she suddenly just turns, looks straight at the camera and has this evil smile. She says, you know, that is the biggest lie you've ever told. And you're just there going, <laughs> um, And then, of course, you know, the, there's another wonderful scene where she's walking. Um, she's taking the, uh, it's not a knife this time, but it was actually a, um, a spear that they used to kill the king. Uh, and she walks across the yard with this spear and it's completely silent and the camera doesn't move. And all you hear is the swishing 
of her um, kimono as she walks like this with this spear across there. It's, it's, it's really eerie, it's really effective. It's fantastic um, visually as well. Uh, the movement of Burnwood to Dunsane is probably the best depiction uh, in that version that I've ever seen. And the other version for people who don't enjoy reading subtitle, you know, and you should be ashamed of yourself if, you, if you're one of those people, uh, is an English version by uh, Roman Polanski. Uh, I think that's probably the, the best English language version of it because it just, I think, understood the main themes uh, of the play. And again, the witches are really interesting characters. And I think in that version, it does end also with the witches leaving the, the beach. So it's, it's quite an interesting scene. Uh, in terms of Venom, which I have quite a lot of for different productions uh, of the play, the worst version I've ever seen live was a version uh, at um, Fox Studio, uh, and it was called OBS. And it was advertised as the most uh, violent version of Macbeth you'll ever see. And it's bad mainly because, first up, it's completely silent. All the gorgeous dialogues, all the gorgeous speeches written by Macbeth were completely wiped out. And what you have... How does that even work? It is horrific. Like, I, I don't know how to explain it. So, okay, so basically when you enter the theatre, and this should have been warning number one, I should have just run the other direction. When you enter the theatre, you were given a poncho. And I thought, why on earth? I'm there dressed in the nines, mind you, you know, thinking I'm going to go see Macbeth. It's going to be fantastic. I'm thinking, why would I need a poncho? You enter into this warehouse, which is what it's designed as, just a bare warehouse, no stage, nothing. And then the lights just go out completely. And then suddenly groups of actors start to appear with spears and chase you around this warehouse, basically leading you to wherever they're going to stage the next part of the scene. It was horrific. Lady Macbeth's transformation, that gorgeous, you know, you know, um, come your spirit that tends to mortal thoughts on sex me now, was basically Lady Macbeth dancing on a pole. She was doing a pole dance. That's her version of the unsex me speech. Uh, I don't even know what this other speech was meant to represent, but there was a scene where Macbeth and um, uh, Macduff were impaling themselves on uh, witch's cone, you know, those traffic cones. Yeah, they were basically impaling themselves on that. And I'm there going, what is this supposed to represent? What scene is this supposed to do? Uh, and the, um, uh, the out damned spot scene with Lady Macbeth, uh, that consists of her in a bathtub, completely naked, throwing bloody water at the audience. So that's where the poncho really came in because you were getting splashed by these horrible, I mean, it was the worst production I've ever seen by far. And it made me realize why the language is so important to Shakespeare. That's a degree of uh, audience participation that makes me profoundly uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so that's horrific. It's like some some BDSM kind of fetish production of Macbeth. Everything you listed there and then you got to, you know, Lady Macbeth naked in the bath throwing blood on everyone. I was just like, yeah, okay. Uh, maybe you didn't read the subtext. <laughs> yeah, no, it was absolutely awful. And I think for me that's that characterises a bad production, a production that doesn't understand what the play um, aims to do in terms of uh, exploring themes and ideas and issues. Um, the most recent adaptation of Macbeth is also one that I dislike immensely, and that's the Justin, I've forgotten his surname now, Kitzel, I think, version starring uh, Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard. And visually, it's a stunning production. It's gorgeous to look at. And of course, you know, you've got beautiful actors playing them too. So that's also, you know, eye candy and everything. But it makes a fatal mistake in that it starts the play with um, the, the death of uh, the Macbeths child which we are hinted at in the play so that's not too far off but then what it's um, proceeded to do was make that one event 
the linchpin with which why, uh, this is why the Macbeths behave the way they do, because they, they suffer from this post-traumatic stress. Uh, and so therefore they're out of their mind. And there's actually a scene there where Macbeth actually loses his mind. And, you know, the camera does that uh, editing thing where, you know, it sort of moves, you know, you know, in a frenzy as if to indicate that his mind is completely, you know, fractured. Uh, and we don't get a sense of that in the play at all because we get a sense that he knows exactly what he's doing and this is what he wants to do. Whereas in this version, it's like he's um, psychologically damaged to a point that he doesn't understand what he's doing. So it, it gives him a justification that I feel is unwarranted. And for me, that made the play actually lessen the whole point of the play. The other major point that I completely disagree with is that at the end of the play, so spoilers alert, um, Lady Macbeth actually becomes one of the witches. So she then joins the witches uh, as the fourth witch in, in that equation, which for me is a fairly misogynistic perspective as if, you know, you know, all women in power have to be equated with witchcraft or something to that effect. So when she dies, she then becomes a witch and you're kind of like, well, you know, that's, you, you don't really have a, a particularly nuance. And I, I think that's also an unfair reading of, of Lady Macbeth as well. I, I don't think she is the kind of agency of chaos and mischief the way that the, the witches, as we've been discussing, are. Um, she has a completely different purpose and she's also ambitious you know, in her own right as well. And, and that's a much more complex way to look at Lady Macbeth than to see from that perspective. So there's that. And of course, the, the version that we talked about earlier, the Sam Worthington Australian uh, Melbourne gangster adaptation, which for me, is one of, you know commits one of the biggest crime in that it chopped my favorite soliloquy of all time that we've spoken about the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech almost completely off all he says is, you know, is that she should have died hereafter tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow um there would have been such a there would have been time for such a word tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, and tomorrow. the end that's it nothing else and so i think when you're looking at a production of shakespeare you need to understand uh that the poetic language is very important to what makes it such an interesting, complex uh, and rich play. And when you remove that, then uh, or when you change some of the ideas, I think it does affect it. So there's my recommendation and my uh, hate list. Um, Jimmy's terrifying, sexy warehouse production <laughs> experience aside, I, um, I have to advocate for the... Um, the benefits, I think, of seeing a live version, if you can, but obviously try to find one that is roughly, I don't know, I want to say faithful to the original, but I think so many of them adapt and change elements of it. It seems to be one of the most adaptable of Shakespeare's plays. Um, and I think also there's... There's something about seeing a play live. There's something about the way the stage space is used um, that I think gives us a lot of information about the text of the play as well. And a lot of, um, you know, actual stage productions will use more of the text than perhaps a film might. So I would, I would just encourage being able to try and see it live if you can somewhere. I, I can't actually recall any productions that I've seen in terms of films recently. I think I did see the, the Michael Fassbender one recent when it came out. But for some reason, all I can remember about it is the violence. Maybe I blacked it out because I thought it was too it's violent. It's forgettable. Yeah, yeah I, I, maybe I just blacked out the rest because I was just focusing on the violence. I have to actually concur with Jimmy in that I think as much as it pains me to admit this because Roman Polanski is a horrible human being. Um, I think his is probably the best one I've seen. Um, I wouldn't necessarily advocate that you go see it because again, Raymond Polanski is a terrible and horrible human being and I don't want to support anything that he's ever done. Um, but he does have a really interesting reading of Macbeth. Sorry, Jimmy. 
so go with throne of blood then you know so as i said my yeah. first recommendation throne of blood the best recommendation but i i really enjoyed shakespeare retold the um the kitchen one so that was the one where the witches are garbage collectors and um it's set in a high-end kitchen and like a sort of gordon ramsay-esque kind of thing going on um i actually i mean it sounds really stupid but um the reason i like it is because it it creatively thinks of a situation in which there's a like a power struggle and yes of course there's this lower stakes than the entire kingdom um but it is a, a kind of more understandable kind of you know turf war than perhaps um we would have today because you know obviously politics works in a very very different way so it doesn't really work as such in a you know straightforward kind of political sense um so i quite enjoyed that the performances were good um i concur with um jimmy's hatred of the sam worthington one which is terrible and i've never hated the australian accent more than in that um <laughs> in that in that adaptation it's just it makes you feel like you never want to talk again, <laughs> which is not a nice position to be in. Um, I think that pretty much wraps us up for today. Have you got any, Jimmy or Kirsten, have you got any points that you think we haven't covered that you'd like to cover? Um, look, there's so many different things. I mean, I could talk about Macbeth endlessly, but if we get started on another topic, I think we're going to go completely over time. So I think I'll just, I have to you know, stay my peace right now and you know, maybe we can revisit the text in a, a different podcast and from a different perspective as well. I think, you know, that's one of the beauties of this particular play itself, that it invites itself to so many different interpretations and so many different ways that you can look at it that it's endlessly debatable, which is why, you know, we, you know, the three of us have been teaching it for basically over 10 years and it's still a rich and fresh play for us in the end. So, you know, we've all spoke about this, you know, we've all talked about uh, texts that we want to get rid of in, in the unit and Macbeth never seems to be one of those ones that's up on offer. And the reason for that is because it's such a wonderful play and such a rich play. And I think in the classroom, we also have amazing discussion from it. I think I'm always learning different things about the play whenever I teach it because students come at it with a different perspective as well. And I think any text that can invite that type of interpretation and a type of different perspective is a rich and fantastic text. So, um, you know, I can praise it to the ends of days and, you know, but we just don't have time for it. I agree. Um, there's just so much we could speak about with this text. It's wonderful. And it'd be good to do another podcast on it as well. Um, I think it's also something that because the play itself is so short, especially in comparison to the other ones, um, there's a lot of room, if you'd like, to do more research and reading around it. And there's such a, a rich variety of um, academic takes and historical context to read up on. There's just um, if you use it sort of as a, as a window to sort of enter this world behind it, there's so much to discover there. So, um, yeah, but we won't talk about that now. Obviously, we've run out of time. So I just want to say thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us, Kirsten, and thank you to Jimmy as well. Um, so that concludes today's episode of From the Lighthouse. If you could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be very, very useful in helping other people find the show. If you want to drop us a line, you can um, go to fromthelighthouse.org or you can tweet us at MQ English. So thank you once again to Kirsten and to Jimmy and we'll leave it there. See you later. <laughs>